What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What Lending Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our city is facing, and explore the innovative Made in London solutions to critical challenges in our community. Hi, I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at London Community Foundation. Today, I'll be speaking with Andrew Chanel, CEO of Community Foundations of Canada. Andrew was a colleague of mine at LCF before joining Community Foundations of Canada in 2013, taking on his current role of CEO. CEO in 2017. Under Andrew's leadership, he's taken the CFC movement on an innovative and forward-thinking journey by applying a global lens to national issues, helping to shape the future of philanthropy in Canada. I'm so excited to have him here today to share his thoughts with us. Hi, Andrew. How are you today? I'm doing quite well, Diane, and so grateful that we can have this conversation here in our hometown of London, Ontario. I know. And it's so great to have you back because, you know, like I said, we were colleagues before and I did work with you briefly for not even close to a year in 2013, but we've certainly stayed in touch and I've admired your leadership from a close and afar for sure. So thanks for being with us today. For those of you, you know, those of us here on the show today who don't know who you are, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like where did you grow up and what drew you into the nonprofit sector? Yeah, great, great question, Diane. You know, um, much like you, I am a Londoner, born and raised, and I've been in London, Ontario my entire life. And uh, uh, I just love the community. I love um, the life that I've had here. And I also recognize that um, London has changed considerably, uh, much like many Canadian communities across the country. I think one of the um, most enlightened thing um, for me and my work at Community Foundations of Canada is recognizing that the rest of Canada, um, although changing much like London is, is very different from London too. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I, I just see that the, 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 the things that are happening within the pandemic, um, the disruptive forces, the social change, is, is really bringing Canadians and likely the world to um, a greater awareness of the challenges that are facing our communities that existed before the pandemic have been accelerated through the pandemic, but then at the same time providing a very permissive open environment through which we can make those critical changes that we've always talked about, including back in 2013 um, when you came on board at the London Community Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, came into this work by accident, actually, but, um, you know, uh, 15 years later, I still find myself energized and uh, glad that I can do the work from from my home base here in London. That's great. And actually, this kind of sets it up for the next question, because just to give the audience some context about who we are and uh, where you see the movement going. So in your words, can you explain to the audience, what is a community foundation? Uh, What's their role? And how do we work? Yeah, the community foundation movement um, consists of 190 individual um, self-governed, self-led community organizations across the country. We cover almost 95% of the Canadian population. Um, the part of the population that we don't cover very well or, or, um, or, or lack presence in is the northern part of the country. 
Um, but we're certainly working with government and other partners on how we can establish a community foundation in, in Northern Canada. Our community foundation movement is exactly that. It's a movement of community players. Um, our, um, our, our business model is about bringing um, donors uh, and their resources to the table and to help um, catalyze the resources that we have. Um, to make grants, um, to invest responsibly, um, and to have a voice for community uh, with the changes that we want to see in our in, in our community and, and going forward. Great. And the movement has been around for a long time. Like, this is nothing really new. We've been around for well over 100 years. And in fact, in Canada, Winnipeg, the Winnipeg Community Foundation, is celebrating its 100th year. So, what have you seen change over the years? Like, how have we evolved? Where are we at today? That's a really good question, Diane. You know, um, we've always been really strong institutions, and we, we've put um, we've put community capacity and community resilience at the top of our agenda, and and that's been, it's been that way for a hundred years, and. We've acted um, as community organizations individually. And as Canada has grown, as technology has proliferated, and has and as the world has globalized, we've seen the need for um, individual institutions to come together and work on things cohesively that are important to all Canadians. There are many challenges that can be solved locally, but we're recognizing that there are many more challenges that need to be worked on nationally. And we're building the muscle around working globally now too. Um, You know, what's happened most recently during the pandemic is we've seen that many charities, particularly social service organizations are operating Um, under very, very difficult time with scarce resources. And the Community Foundation Network across the country has worked with the federal government to help bring in um, well over $100 million of resources to help those frontline charities through what is the most difficult time of our generation. And so I think the changes that we're seeing to your question, Diana, is working um, acutely in a, in a local environment to now working together as a set of national um, uh, oriented organizations, recognizing that local is important, but that as Canadians, we all have a role to play in the betterment of our country. And what's unique about that is we are the only community foundation um, movement network association in the entire world that works like this. No other community foundation work, uh, community foundation um, movement has this sort of capacity. So what we're doing is um, innovative and unique, and we're building an important new muscle for Canadians. And like you said, you know, here we are, January 2021. We're still in the thick of the global pandemic. You know, we've been we've done the transition from, you know, work uh, from home since last March. And we're seeing more and more, you know, social unrest across the globe, you know, especially even south of the border. And, you know, we also have our issues, too. 
So, you know, given our model, right, you know, we're, we're not your typical national charity, uh, but, you know, how are we challenging the institution of philanthropy more generally and what helps or hinders us in driving social change or initiating systemic change? Yeah, um, th- there's a lot there, Diane. Maybe I'll pick off um, a few different themes. I think the first one is capitalism. Um, you know, during, uh, you know, this is talked a lot about in the UK and the United States, um, but but during the, the reign of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, um, there was, we were at the advent of neoliberalism, which was about um, pr- the promotion of um, uh, small government, um, lower regulatory environment and market forces. And in that realm, um, we've created a lot of wealth in our systems. Um, the challenge has been that the wealth has been created in an inequitable way. We're seeing that fewer people are holding greater proportions or greater concentrations of wealth. Now, community foundations um, notionally uh, situate themselves in a place of receiving a lot of that wealth because um, wealthy donors will create donor advised funds or make contributions to community foundations and other philanthropic organizations to then be redistributed. So our role really is is as a redistributor and taking that that wealth that's created in the system and then putting it into the hands of people that are re- that really need it. Um, I would challenge that capitalism inequality um, is something that we're aware that we can be perpetuating ourselves. Because when we look at our business model, we receive um, we receive excess wealth from donors. And then we invest that excess wealth into the capital markets to to do what, Diane? And that is to create more wealth so that we can take a portion of it and redistribute it into our community. The fact of the matter is this. Um, we rely on the system producing wealth in an inequitable way so that we can receive it. And that is our paradox. That's the conflict in the system because right. although we don't like inequality, we probably don't exist if inequality doesn't exist because we're not retail fundraisers. We, we build endowments. We build these large funds um, where donors need to have a, a good amount of wealth to, 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 to provide them to us. And not that those donors didn't work hard, not that those donors didn't take risks, not that they're not um, innovative. Of course they are. They're all those things. And those are good things. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we have to recognize that our role is not simply to distribute five cents on the dollar. Right. When you distribute five cents of the dollar, you actually perpetuate the inequality that you're trying to solve for. I think the other thing there, um, it, you know, goes to my earlier comments. And I, I wrote a, a letter to the Community Foundation Movement last year on this is, are we looking in the mirror? Mm. And this is, was in response to the civil uh, social unrest in, in particular in the U.S. at the time around George Floyd, Breonna Taylor a few other um, uh, black men and women who were killed. 
and asking the question, are we, in fact, uh, the philanthropic sector, um, are we a racist sector? And of course we are. We have a tremendous amount of systemic and institutional racism within the Community Foundation movement and our institutions. The Foundation for Black Canadians released a report late in 2020 called Unfunded. And in that report, they measured the level of contribution from community foundations to the Black community um, over, I, I think the period was 2017 and 2018. And less than one half of 1% of our total funding went to Black-led or Black-serving organizations. Wow. I, yeah. I think that if we were to commission a report for the Indigenous community, we might see similar numbers. Mm -hmm. um, the leadership of community foundations, the boards of community foundations, the committees of community foundations are still primarily white. That is changing, and we've made improvements mm -hmm. um, in the last 10 years, but it is still primarily white. Our donor base is still primarily white. And so we have to, we have to look at um, the, the diversity of our institutions and understand how it impacts our decision-making and awareness of issues that are within the community. Um, For sure. Lots of work left to do there. Yeah, no, um, we would definitely agree with you. And uh, in fact, that is something that uh, Lending Community Foundation is really paying attention to. We're, we're really taking this seriously about listening and learning and evolving during these times because we do understand that, you know, a community foundation should be reflective of its community, right? So, and the members within it. So you're absolutely right. Um, and in fact, uh, London Community Foundation is actually one of, you know, when you look at community foundations across the country and you were talking about donor advised funds, um, our foundation in London is actually considerably lucky that we actually have a large community fund, which is our unrestricted pool of money, right, that we get to deploy into the community. And um, from that fund alone, through our granting program, we're granting over a million dollars into the community. And we've also carved off over 20 million of assets of those unrestricted assets to deploy for uh, housing uh, initiatives and social entrepreneurs. So, you know, talking about and I've recently attended a CFC uh, webinar where they were talking about trust based philanthropy. Could you unpack that a little bit more for the listener? Because how that ties into unrestricted funding and how important that is for a community. Yeah, happy to do that, Diane. Um, maybe I'll start. I'll go back about a year and a half in August of 2019. And in the United States, there's a group called the Business Roundtable, the BRT, uh, it's about 160 um, CEOs of large um, global companies. And they, they penned a letter that questioned the relevancy and the effectiveness of shareholder primacy when running a corporate organization. And so this really um, draws attention to Milton Friedman's assessment that um, corporations exist for the sole purpose of maximizing shareholder wealth. 
Now, the uh, the the um, other side of that is in in the nonprofit world or in the charitable world. Um, we also have certain constituencies that we place a lot of value in, and so donor primacy is our equivalent to the corporate world's shareholder primacy. Now, these corporate executives said, hey, you know, we have to look at the complexity of the global world that we're in. Uh, we don't simply exist to maximize shareholder value. We have to and absolutely must take into account the impact of our work, our products, our services, and our actions on the community and on the global climate. We have to consider the well-being of our employees and all those people that work in our supply chains. And the list goes on and on and on. So this is a very expansive, broad view of how corporations should act and make decisions. Now, in our world, as you mentioned, Diane, um, and the London Community Foundation um, is a bit of an anomaly. Um, London Community Foundation has a significant amount of resources, probably a third of its assets or maybe a little higher are in unrestricted funds. Right. However, in many other community foundations, um, unrestricted funds can be um, as low as 10 or 5% of total, total assets. Mm -hmm. In those organizations, um, the donor voice and the donor power is very strong. And oftentimes, the donor, although has good intentions, generous, generous and altruistic, does not understand the priorities and needs of community in the way that we do. So when we talk about trust-based philanthropy, there needs to be trust between those that hold capital um, at the individual level. So that would be our wealthy donors and trust of the institution that is there to use that capital in a responsible way to build community. And unless that happens, there will always be a lack of alignment between where capital exists and where capital needs to be deployed. And so if we go back to um, our, uh, you know, the, the things that have given rise to philanthropy, which is that recognition that the community needs the wealth that's generated in the system of capitalism to go to the right places. This is a critical piece because what we're seeing is that um, oftentimes, you know, resources go to good places all the time. They do. Um, we, we make grants to charities and all charities are doing good work. However, there is a prioritization that is required and then there is a system of change that needs to be looked at that goes beyond simply boosting up capacity of individual organization, but actually changing the system in which we operate. And that also needs um, some level of capital deployment. And in fact, you know, I think as a fundraiser, and even though I'm not your typical fundraiser, because that's not what essentially we do at community foundations, but as the person in donor development, I think what's ahead of us and what's the opportunity for us is to really educate the donors, right? Um, clearly, people that are drawn to us, they care about their community. Um, they want to make the right decisions, but it's also up to us to, you know, educate them, sometimes even challenge them, right? And guide them through this because 
you know, um, we do, let's be honest, we do need um, money to invest in initiatives and to drive change. But we can marry it so beautifully if we are doing it in partnership together and um, creating that space for donors to deeply understand the realities of what's going on in their community, what are what are some groups that are being missed, and what's the opportunities to make our community much stronger. So, Andrew, here we are, you know, our, our model. Essentially, we're a community foundation, a foundation um, by our virtue is to be here in perpetuity, right? Um, foundations across the board are expected expected to disperse at least 3.5% of its earnings into the community. Um, And now, given the pandemic and what's happening uh, across the country, we're being challenged about our disbursement quotas. Do you have anything to say about that? (laughs) Yeah, Diane, that's um, a, a topical relevant issue right now you know as you mentioned the disbursement quote is three and a half percent actually it's come down um over the years it used to be um a lot higher than that now our disbursement quota interestingly enough has typically been a function of investment returns right and so community foundations you know much like the uh, much like london community foundation have spending policies and in that spending policy there's an articulation of what the long-term rate of return uh, is and investment committees will inform those decisions. And then within that, you decide, you know, how much you want to grant, uh, which is typically, you know, um, well above three and a half percent, like most community foundations over the last 10 or 15 years would have granted somewhere between six and 8% on average. So community foundations do a fabulous job. Um, in going well above the floor. Um, and then there's also um, a, a percentage set aside to run the operations of the community foundation, which can be anywhere between one and two, maybe two and a half percent. And then there's um, an amount for inflation protection. So makes a whole lot of sense. In the constructs of a pandemic where so many social service organizations are hurting, um, it, it, it is a source of discussion and debate. Um, I think we need to, um, to do more than we've done. Um, I, I can't really put a number on it, but we have to go further. I know that critics will say, you know, Andrew, there's, um, uh, there's trust agreements, there's donor advised agreements, we have to protect capital in perpetuity. Um, and, and so we're, we're unable to do that. I, I don't know that that's the real reason. Um, and, and, the, and the reason I say that is this, is in Ontario, back, I believe in May, the Ministry of the Attorney General um, issued a letter and issued it to all um, charitable foundations, charitable organizations that hold endowments that created a permissive regulatory environment through which capital could be spent and encroached upon. It was a one-time measure that's still in existence that recognized the um, the dire straits of the pandemic, the need for money to flow to social services, frontline organizations, and allowing foundations to do that, allowing them to actually spend capital. Um, at this point where I sit today, I don't know of any community foundations that are have taken 
the invitation from the attorney general's office to spend capital. And so where we are is we've, we've removed the regulatory barriers. We, we've made it permissive to spend capital and we're still not doing it. And there's a lot of organizations in our communities and you know them well that are suffering. So the question is, why aren't we? What, what is the issue? Uh, it, it's definitely not a regulatory one because we've removed that and we're allowed to and we're not. Um, I think we have to come to grips with some difficult things about the culture of philanthropy and our thinking that growing these endowments and protecting these endowments is our primary motive. Um, we are not pension plans. Um, we are not supposed to be capital aggregators or accumulators. In fact, we're supposed to be the complete opposite. And at a time when our communities need us the most, 10 months into a global pandemic, we really do need to think about spending a lot more than 6 to 8%. Um, the YMCAs are closing, boys and girls clubs are closing all across the country. Um, and if we're still sitting on these excessive amounts of capital and claim that we're doing it for the future, <laughs> um, I think that's going to be a hard argument to make because the future will be that much more difficult to rebuild um, if, if uh, we let other institutions serving our communities falter uh, while we're in a protectionist mode. Wow. And here you are, the CEO of Community Foundations of Canada, knowing full well the model and you're challenging it. Um, no, that, that takes a lot of guts and strong leadership to do that. So I think maybe that's the thing that uh, community foundations across the country should be thinking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Who do we want to be? Yeah, that Diana, great. I just <laughs> want to add in another yeah. data point with I think it's important because investment committees um, will we'll probably rally around a different sort of framework here. You know, I, I talked about how our spending policies are tied to our investment policy. <clears throat> the S&P 500, since it was first tracked, which I think is in the 1920s sometime. If you take the annual rate of return, average annual rate of return on the S&P 500 from then to now, it's something just short of 10%, but call it 10%. Now, if you're a passive investor, you would earn, you would have earned 10% just by investing in the S&P 500 over the last say, 100 years. Now, community foundations, much like LCF, are active investors which means we typically add alpha to our portfolio. And that can be as low as 2%, could be as high as 4%, who knows, depending on your manager performance. So that puts you at somewhere between 12 and 14% rate of return. And, and that is indicative. It is indicative of what community foundations earn in the market over a very long period of time. The disbursement quote is 3.5%. And it costs us one and a half to two percent to run the organization. So do the math. So now you're at five and a half percent. Add in another percent for inflation. Now you're at six and a half percent. Well, if you're making twelve percent, where's the where's the delta going? Wow. Right? You're building the coffers, you're sitting on capital. And there's a good reason for that. There really is. The the reason is being you want to be there for the future of your communities. And you want to be there when others cannot be. And so you do need to build a pipeline of resources. However, 
a global pandemic is a game changer. It is a game changer that throws that model on its side. And I think we have to realize that. We have to be aware of it and acknowledge that at least for the time being, we need to spend more and do more. There might be a time and there, I hope there will be a time we can get back to that model and that's the model we can fall back into. But for right now, there's no way that, um, that we can um, put capital preservation and capital accumulation um, as something that, that guides our decision-making. It's, uh, it's a lot to take and you're right. Um, you know, given the current situation, do we adapt, right, for this short term? Because really, our, we hope that the pandemic will be resolved, and we know it will be. But given this uh, point in time, do we, do we adapt to this environment and change the model, you mm-hmm. know, for short term? And then go back to thinking long term how we've always been, right? So, very good point, Andrew. Thank you. So, finally, as a London resident, what do you think London can be? And how can we get there together? <laughs> you know, L- London's got so many wonderful things to build on. And I, I think the greatest asset of London right now um, is the youth. And I just see this younger generation of Canadians, which happens to be um, the most diverse group on the planet, of the, on, on the face of the planet. Um, we, we just have th- these people that are ready to be unleashed and they're going to be your future donors, Diane. And I think you know this because you and I have talked about this, but that generation, um, the way that they look at wealth and their responsibility around wealth will be vastly different than the way that you and I look at wealth or our parents looked at it's it. True. Very true. Yeah. And, um, and I think this is the question for, for people like yourselves, you know, fundraisers or the institutions um, that we work for is how are we going to be justice oriented in, um, in our giving? And in, as you call that donor journey or that donor evolution, um, because those donors, um, the younger ones, the ones that are, that are about to place their wealth with us, they're going to be asking us tough questions that we may be unprepared to answer, which is what are we doing to advance social justice movements in our community? The question won't be how much money did you give the London Food Bank or how much money did you give the YMCA of Southwestern Ontario? It's like, how is my money or how is how are these investments being deployed in such a way that provides justice to the community? And I don't know that we have those answers figured out yet. I know we're in the process of thinking about that. Mm-hmm. But charities are becoming the vehicles towards social justice, not necessarily because we want to, but because the market is taking us there. And and that that to me is the um, uh, that that so there's a lot of excitement in that in how London can be transformed. Um, we're lucky that we have an amazing community college, one of the country's best universities, um, excellent regional health facilities. Um, we have an economy um, that, that is growing. Um, there are jobs here. We're here in the middle of the NAFTA superhighway. Um, it's Southwestern Ontario. We're surrounded by 
a tremendous amount of um, fertile land. So agriculture is um, um, uh, something that we can um, value and continue on with. Um, but it has to be done in a way that is inclusive and invites everybody into the conversation. One of the things that we know is that technology um, and the proliferation of technology, technology, um, uh, the impact of climate is eroding a lot of industries and sectors where people like our parents um, worked in, Diane, where they made a living. And those folks and those that are still in that those sectors are feeling like the new economy is not something that they can participate in. So I think we have to build inclusive economies. I think London's well situated to do that. But that is the work that philanthropy also has to be involved with, where, where traditionally we have not been. Absolutely. And very well said. Um, a lot of stuff for us to think about and process. But actually, it also gives me a sense of excitement and hope too, right? That, you know, this change is good and it's palpable and we're you know, we're, you, you kind of have to grind it out, but we'll, uh, we'll get there. We, we will for sure. And if we engage more youth and, and diverse opinions and different groups at the table, um, how can we not thrive in this environment, right? So thank you, Andrew, so much for your time. Thanks for joining our podcast, What Letting Can Be. Wish you all the best, and I hope we can bring you back on to the show. Absolutely. I'm uh, so grateful um, that you made the generous invitation for me to be a part of this amazing podcast and to be the first one. Yeah. Um, I'll be looking for the other ones, too, to hear how you're doing. And i um, happy to accept any future invitations, Diane, and uh, wish you all the best. You too, Andrew. Thank you so much. You take care, okay? <laughs> bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What London Can Be. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn how to subscribe to this podcast and for more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca slash whatlondoncanbe. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you.